Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Laura Drummondale with Coastal Consulting located in Southern Mississippi. Laura shares several insights on deals she has facilitated in the last few decades. The first transaction is with an e-commerce business where some of the metrics on the financial statements just didn't seem to add up. One of the issues had to do with gross margins and some of the products that were being sold. These margins were north of 75%, which was far above the norm for this business segment. This issue caused the buyer to dig a little bit deeper. Listen and find out what the buyer found as he dug deeper into the book. It's a fascinating story. Next, Lauren shares how being transparent can cut both ways. Not enough transparency is a bad thing and can kill deals, as well as too much transparency can also be a negative thing that can kill a deal. Lauren then shares the details of another transaction that took place during COVID and how top-tier execution doubled the value of a restaurant when other restaurants were failing left and right. There are some real gems you need to hear about in this transactional story. Finally, Lauren shares how a 35-year-old landscaping business failed to monetize its full enterprise value and why the seller wasn't the least bit upset about this. And I believe if you were in his position, you probably wouldn't be all that upset either. Find out the reasoning by listening to Laura as she shares some unique insights from this transaction. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with Lauren Drummondale. Laura, would you take just a few minutes and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your company and what part of the country you're located in? Sure. I'm Lauren Drummondale. I'm a business broker uh, certified through the IBBA as a certified business intermediary. I'm located on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Uh, we travel from here to the majority of our clients. My son is my business partner with me. We deal mostly with middle market, main street type businesses. All right. The coastal area there. Can you talk a little bit about the area and how long you've been in business? Sure. I've lived in Mississippi for many years and slowly moved south until I ended up close to the beach. So there's no no more further south to go. Um so my market is kind of a half a circle instead of a full circle, but we do work all throughout the state of Mississippi. We go over into New- to Louisiana some and over into Alabama also. It's a, um, we're cities, but we're not super large cities. The, there's pretty good population uh, density here right on the coast as versus the upper part of Mississippi, which is much more rural. Not a lot of manufacturing goes on in this, this part of the country, uh, much more retail type operations. All right, cool. Well, why don't we get started here and talk about some of those transactions that you've been involved in over the years, different types of businesses that you've worked with entrepreneurs, positioning their businesses for an exit and teeing the businesses up. Why don't we start with one that was kind of challenging for you? 
that might have some interesting insights and takeaways for some of our audience that might be in a similar situation? Right. So first that comes to mind is an e-commerce business that we were involved as the broker in the transaction. Um, e-commerce businesses, you can't walk in and physically see what's going on like you can in a dress shop or a, a more conventional retail operation. This particular business, um, there didn't seem, there seemed to be issues with the the current owner, the way they were keeping the book. When you say e-commerce business, what did they deal with? Was it something they sold from their own website or maybe on Amazon or eBay or share a little bit about the type of business it was before we talk a little bit about the owner and what their motivations were for selling? Right. So, so they bought sports memorabilia from vendors and then sold them on an Amazon storefront website. So they stocked this inventory that they bought from vendors, uh, things that were labeled for the different NFL teams and the base professional baseball and that sort of items. Sports memorabilia is really a, a big business. I've been surprised as we've chatted with some people that have been in e-commerce of how huge this type of business can be. And I know there's a lot of rules and regulations and licensing requirements when you're dealing with memorabilia. I would imagine that that was somewhat part and parcel of this type of transaction. So before we get into that, though, how long had this business been around? Uh, was it uh, established by the entrepreneur? Did he buy it from someone? Give us a little bit of the background of the business and how long the current entrepreneur had been involved. Right. They bought it as a going concern. Uh, someone had had it for several years prior to them purchasing it. They purchased it and had it for four to five years around in that that time frame and then came to us to help them sell it. And tell us a little bit about how that transaction unfolded. So when the transaction initially unfolded and we were doing a, a, a review of the financials of the owner's company, there seemed to be a good many discrepancies in uh, cost of sales, bottom line, inventory on the shelf. And it seemed like the deeper we dove, the more confusing it got. Um, and that's one of the takeaways that, that we want to talk about here is when you start seeing things that just don't smell quite right and things you don't understand what they've done when you look at businesses all day, every day, um, that should be a red flag to, to take a second look, a third look, a fourth look and make sure that you know as much as a broker, as much as I possibly can about the business operations before I bring a new buyer into the mix. You mentioned in your description of the business there that the business purchased memorabilia from vendors. So I imagine from that description that there was a lot of inventory on hand or in stock. And of course, inventory always raises you know the type of issues of accurate accounting of that inventory, as well as write-offs and write-downs of that type of inventory. Could you address that, especially when it relates to an e-commerce business, why that might be a little bit more sensitive or important with someone is looking at or thinking about selling an e-commerce business, how that shows up uh, on the financials and why that's so crucial? Right. So, so many businesses are run as a sole proprietor, um, and the sole proprietor doesn't realize how important those inventory numbers are, and maybe they don't report them accurately to their accountant at the end of the year. This particular business had written off 
a large portion of inventory. They felt like uh, when they bought the from the previous owner that this inventory wasn't any good. So they wrote it off. They could take a loss, get a tax benefit from this loss of inventory. But then they were selling this inventory. So let's just hit pause there for a minute. What you said there is kind of interesting. So when the current owner purchased that, inventory, he felt that this inventory was obsolete or outdated, uh, maybe not accurate. So he and his accountant completely wrote off a majority, if not all of that inventory. And when you write off the inventory, you get a tax benefit from that write-off. And that benefited them from a cash flow standpoint anyway, by reducing the amount of taxes that would be due on inventory and sales. But this inventory was still there and it sounds like it wasn't obsolete and they just continued to sell it. How did that impact everything? So it appeared from a tax return that they sold things at an 80% profit margin. I can't remember the exact number, but it looked like their profit margin was huge. Um, because they only reported the cost of sales of the new merchandise that they purchased. And it was a it was a mix and it was a blend and there was really no clear answer on what inventory they've been written off was sold, what had not been sold. So let's just be clear now for the benefit of people listening to this is that you write off the inventory and then you sell something. So let's take an example. You sell something for a hundred dollars and that revenue comes in to your bank account as revenue for a hundred bucks. But normally that may have cost fifty dollars. And so the profit margin when you take the revenue less the cost of sales, you have a 50% or in this case, $50 uh, gross profit that's reported before you take you know other expenses off against it. But what you're telling me is, is that they had 100%. So that's quite a profit margin. Yeah, so they were, they were buying new inventory also at the same time. So uh, it was, I probably had seven to eight conversations with the accountant and the owners trying to understand why there was such huge swings in the profit margin. And and then to complicate it even more, the owner had never reported an inventory change to the accountant after the first year. Um, the accountant was just looking at what had been purchased and some of their purchases weren't booked correctly. So it didn't go to inventory. It was just a, it was just a mess. Um, and, and from that mess, we should have dove deeper. The next issue that came up was, uh, transferring ownership of an Amazon storefront is, is a little tricky. There's, there's evidence that it can be done. There's evidence that it can't be done. Uh, you want to be able to transfer it if you have good ratings and you're coming up high on the Amazon list when, when you punch in sports memorabilia and you're at the top of the list, that's a good place to be. Um, and several of the buyers that we talked to, when they did in-depth due diligence, there was just too much fear that Amazon would make them start over and they'd walk, they'd walk away from, from the sale. Uh, we finally or, or we came across a buyer that was willing to take that risk. And then, lo and behold, another problem came up. Okay, well, this is getting more intriguing all the time. What were what, what, what <laughs> right. was the, what was the next shoe to fall? Yeah, they. Um, so we closed the transaction, and and we thought everybody was going to be happy until, lo and behold, the vendor that the prime vendor that was selling the product to the owner said, "Oh no, I can't sell it to you if you're reselling it. My license is only to sell to you to an end user or to a storefront." 
So we can't sell you the product that's making up 70 to 80% of your revenue anymore. So the new owner had basically bought a room full of memorabilia that once it was sold, it couldn't be replaced. So they, uh, they had to pivot and try to find another income stream that they could put on their Amazon store. So I just want to understand this dynamic here that you talked about. As with anything that's branded or especially with dealing with NFL teams and other sports memorabilia, you have the issue of licensing rights and under what conditions those rights can be transferred and how they can be marketed. And what you're saying here is that one of their largest vendors of memorabilia once he found out they were an Amazon store, indicated that he couldn't sell them this memorabilia because his license did not allow him to do that. Allow. Because it had to be sold to a storefront, a physical storefront versus an online storefront. Is that how I'm kind of understanding? Correct. Correct. So so we knew they were licensed. We, we thought we had, had done the due diligence there that they were licensed to uh, provide the memorabilia. It wasn't some off-brand imported illegal memorabilia logoed up all that part was good we just didn't we didn't take that one more step well it sounds like there's a pattern here specifically with this transaction that starting with the inventory and and how they manage their accounting and add the revenue recognition and that was kind of a pattern and it sounds like the biggest issue here was that the buyer was operating under a licensing arrangement that as long as there wasn't an issue, he was able to buy inventory. But once that issue arose and the supplier of that memorabilia said, nope, just can't sell it to you. As you said, what, 70% of the revenue? Yeah, large, large portion. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, when you deal with a transaction like this, Lauren, what would you tell someone that's selling a business, what they should take away from this transaction? I know that we have a large number of people in our audience that are in e-commerce of one part or another. They're either selling from their website or they're on eBay or in Amazon. Uh, what would you suggest or what would be the big takeaway for those entrepreneurs that are thinking about selling their business? What can they take away from this transaction? Yeah, well, I don't think our seller was was trying to, to, to deceive us in any way. I think they had not done the proper due diligence either. You don't normally think that you need to read a contract from a vendor that's supplying you a product to sell at the retail level, which is how they perceived it. Um, but since an e-commerce business, you cannot walk into a physical building and see what's happening as a general rule. Your due diligence needs to go very deep. Uh, you need to have contact and uh, exchange of information with your suppliers, your website hoster, your storefront system, your Amazon. If you're an Amazon, you know, Amazon has, has different, seems to have different rules for different people. Um, you, you just need to take a second, a third, and a fourth look. Um, be hyper diligent when you're dealing with an e commerce entity. Well, I like that. That's a great soundbite. When you're dealing with these type of issues, or I guess what you would really say is that when there are issues that come up, and in this particular case, it seemed to surround inventory, but it was kind of a red flag of how 
this particular business was operating and how lax they were on some of their accounting and reporting. And that tells you that they may not have been all that diligent in other parts of their business. And it's kind of proved out that they didn't really realize of what the requirements were from this vendor on the licensing requirements for an Amazon storefront. And so when you have these type of issues, uh, as you said, you need to take a first look, a second look, and a third look, and maybe even a fourth look and be hyper diligent because you really can't assume a lot of things as you would in buying a retail operation where you can walk in and watch the customers and walk in the back room or in the warehouse and look at the inventory and count a little of it yourself. And with a storefront online, you just can't do that. And so I think that's a great takeaway for those that are listening today. Uh, if you have an e-commerce business. Yeah, particularly when you have a business that that's focused on one product. And, and it was many, many products, but they were all sports-related licensed memorabilia, or the bulk of them were. You know, if this was a, a Amazon store that had been selling candles or cookies, they could have just gone to another supplier. But when you're selling something that is such a narrow a narrow ability to purchase, that's when you really, really got to look close. Well, that's a point well taken. That's a point well taken and something that I think deserves some consideration when you look at concentration of revenue. This is something that generally doesn't come up. Uh, Often it's concentrated into one customer or something like this. But in this particular case, it was really a licensing issue where you're hyper concentrated in the, the licensing product that you deal with. Well, that was that was interesting. So why don't we move on, Lauren, and talk a little bit about another transaction that may have had some other unique components to it? Yeah, I really want to talk about two entities uh, that had the same problem, but kind of in reverse. Uh, an irrigation landscape supply company and a uniform supply company, uh, both closely held companies, um, both very difficult to sell. Uh, why were they difficult to sell? Because we needed the owners to be totally transparent with us from day one on what it took to run their company. The um, landscape irrigation company indicated to us that it was pretty much absentee owned, that they had to do payroll, they had to check on the employees at the end of the day and make sure they had done the work, but that it was kind of an absentee part-time operation. Uh, that proved to not be true at all. How so? It required uh, the owner to be on deck every day to go even so far as to drive the crew to the job site, to to put them on the mowers at the job site or the dig or the shovel or whatever needed to be done for that day. So when we're trying to find the right buyer um, and, and we're we're looking for a buyer that, that has a, a purchase power but doesn't want to be full-time and we're looking for the wrong buyer Uh, and we're looking for a buyer that maybe doesn't have a lot of experience in the field because they don't need to be there much they just need to keep keep up with the books and the payroll Um, the opposite happened with our uh, uniform supplier it seemed pretty simple they had a concept a heavy concentration in one customer but they had an inventory of uniforms and They sold the uniforms to the employees on a a quarterly basis. But every time we take a buyer out to to interview with the seller, um, the description of what was required to run the business made it sound so complicated that every buyer walked away. 
uh, partially due to a, a common thread we see with owners that they they want people to be proud and impressed with what they've done. Business owners don't get a lot of accolades uh, for building their business from nothing to something. So when someone comes in and wants to hear how they built something from nothing, they want to tell them. And, and they, want, they want them to be impressed with what they did. Unfortunately, when you're transitioning that business to a new buyer, they don't want it to be real hard. They're buying it because it's already existing and they're hoping it's operating. Excuse me, let me get my silly little dog who's scratching at my leg. My coworker. <laughs> that's your office assistant, huh? <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. What you said there is that you, uh, and I like what you said when you said, you know, entrepreneurs, they're sitting in the captain's chair. Often they don't have a lot of positive feedback and people patting them on the back, telling them what a great business they have. It's generally the opposite. They have employees that are unhappy, vendors that have complaints, and customers that have issues. And sometimes it just is a very stressful and unappreciated type of environment they exist in. And they've done a great job when they've built it up, as you said, from nothing into something and sometimes really spectacular something. When someone wants to find out about how they did it, they want to tell them how difficult it was and how hard it was and how long it took them and, and how intricate and complex the business is. And they figured it out. And I can just see what you're talking about is that the buyers you brought to the table, you know, they're thinking, oh, my goodness, I, I'm never going to be able to do this. It took this guy 15 years to get a handle on this business. And <laughs> I'm, I don't have that capability or don't have the time or the energy to do this. Uh, I'm going to walk away from this transaction when, in fact, it's not that difficult. So transparency cuts two ways. Yeah, the opposite should have been true. The uh, irrigation landscape business should have should have been saying our biggest problem is getting employees. And they never, they never said that. There was, they never brought that up as an issue. Whereas my uniform gal didn't really need but one or two employees and still had a million dollar business. But she would tell everybody, you can't find anybody to have to do your books. You can't find anybody to take your inventory. You just have to do this stuff yourself to make sure it's done right. So the buyer's eyes get big. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I understand that dynamic. I had a, a business years ago, it had multiple locations, and I hired my brother to run one of the locations, and he was a control freak. And we had Thanksgiving one year, and he was supposed to be there like one or two o'clock in the afternoon for dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, with the rest of the family, and he didn't show up. And we waited and waited, and I finally called him, and he was at the shop working. And I said, what in the heck are you doing? And he says, you know, you just can't find good employees. I have to do all this stuff myself. If you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. And this stuff's got to get out tomorrow and, and no one else to do it. So I'm going to do it, which wasn't true because I had a number of other facilities and locations and that wasn't the truth. They were all running just fine, but it's just that perception of, of the person in control of, of what they think it needs to get done and the ability they have to manage. So what would you say the big takeaway here is for this transaction that you talked about here between these two types of businesses? Yeah, a, a business owner really needs to evaluate and be clear about what it takes to run their business. 
um, take themselves kind of out of the picture a little bit and think about someone else coming in to buy their business. What is it really going to take? If you really feel like it has to be run by you and nobody else can do anything and it all has to be dependent on you, then convince, convince me that that's the case. And I'll only look for buyers that want a full-time job. Uh, and don't want to deal with employees or anything else. But, you know, it may or may not be the case, but let's talk about it. Let's make it clear. Um, if it if it requires full time, then it then it does. It, we, we, we need to know what we're dealing with. We we need to know what we need to know. And then we can try to find the right buyer for almost any business. So what you're really saying is that transparency really cuts two ways. You can over disclose and you can under disclose. And either one is not a great scenario because you want accurate information. You don't want it to look better than it is or worse than it is. Sellers that over-dramatize how hard it is, they're going to create situations where a buyer is not going to want to be involved. And so the key here is that you want your buyer to succeed, especially if you're carrying back some paper and promissory notes. You want them to succeed and you just need to be upfront and honest. And I think that's kind of the big takeaway here. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes. Yes. I I tell our sellers when we're speaking to them to consider us to be like a lawyer. We need to know everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. If we know it, we can deal with it. If we don't, then then we all get caught in in a mess somewhere along the line. All right, Lauren, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back in a few minutes to talk a little bit more about some of your other transactions. You know, I get a ton of feedback from entrepreneurs out there that listen to the podcast that are just beginning to think about how to position their business for an eventual exit. They really want to know what they can do to be able to maximize their exit value. I've prepared a short report that will outline some of the key strategies that can literally double the amount of money you put into your pocket when you sell. If you'd like to get a free copy of this report, just go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report and request a copy. Again, that's www.businessexitstories.com forward slash report, and I'll make sure that you get a copy. All right, we're back here with Lauren. Lauren has just shared a couple of transactions that had some challenges with them. Now we're going to discuss and talk a little bit about those transactions that worked out well. And maybe in some situations, they worked out very, very well. So why don't we jump in and have you share some of the details of a transaction that went well and where both buyer and seller walked away happy? Right. So the first uh, one that comes to mind is a restaurant that approached us to do an evaluation on their business. And when we came back with what the business would bring on the market, they were quite disappointed. They wanted it to be worth a good bit more than that. Um, So we discussed some things that they could do in order to increase the value of the company. And they did some hard work with their accountant, um, developed processes and procedures, got better staff on hand, so everything wasn't dependent on them being there at the restaurant all the time. And 18 months later, they came back and said, would you take another look? And I was just blown away with what they had done in such a short period of time. They had raised their profitability. They had raised their sales. uh, They had cleaned up their books. It was clear what the the restaurant was generating in income and cash flow. Uh, And they were proud of themselves. They had gotten pretty excited about... uh, 
working towards an exit strategy. It sounds like what happened here is that uh, they got re-energized and they really got focused because they now had a specific goal in mind and they kind of buckled down and made things happen where they were coasting before, it sounds like. Right. So the sad part of that story was there was two owners and one of the owners uh, was diagnosed with end-stage terminal cancer. Oh. Um, he was he was quite optimistic, and there was even some question about whether they should sell because the business was generating so much income at this point with very little owner involvement. Uh, one of the owners was still pretty active, but the one that was ill was, was not as active, and the business was still doing great. But it, in in for purposes of estate planning and all those sort of things, they decided they better go ahead and sell. What was such a relief to me and what was so beautiful about it at that point was when we put it on the market, um, even though the sellers quickly, I mean, the buyers quickly became aware that the seller was an end of life uh, process, they, they never asked for a discount because the company was not dependent on the owner that, that was so ill. They had, they had created a company that could stand on its own. So there was no justification to lower the price. And the buyer was, uh, they were good people, I guess. They didn't even ask. Um, So we were able to get the business sold and closed. And um, the the one owner died almost within a month or so after that. Uh, So that the timing, the timing worked out well for, for everyone to, to, to get this this chapter closed so everyone could move on. Now, the new owner has just been pleased as punch with the business that he inherited. Uh, the, the former owner had kind of created a, a takeoff strip for him, and they have just taken the business, made some minor upgrades and changes, and the business is now even bigger than it was when they purchased it. Uh, and they're they're very very happy with the business that they purchased. Just for curiosity, was this during the whole COVID business cycle that we're dealing with? Yes, because restaurants were hit hard. As you said, the business took over. Was he able to increase the business thirty forty percent? What what was the increase of revenue during COVID? Yeah, significant significant increase, uh, mostly due to being able to have outdoor dining. Uh, and be able to separate the diners. And I, I think he did lengthen his hours a little bit so that he could have more hours of availability for people to come into the restaurant. You know, I'm not privy to their exact numbers, but I, I see the restaurant, the indoor and the outdoor, just packed seven days a week now from lunch until until they close down at night. So it sounds like before, even COVID, uh, it wasn't packed seven days a week or only part of the day. No, right, right. You mostly saw it packed at night, weekend nights. Well, I am taking away and trying to get a visual picture of what kind of happened here is that we had some owners that were somewhat involved in the business and had to be there on a day-to-day basis, which is understandable in a restaurant. But once they got really focused and geared into the thought process that they had a year or two to get the business ready for sale, they really made some significant changes, cleaned up their processes and their accounting and finances and got their profitability up. And when it did come time to sell, then what we never want to hear happened, sort of happened to them, that the unexpected health issue arose. And even that, because they had been so hyper-vigilant in positioning their business for sale, they were able to have a smooth exit with a qualified buyer. So that's one big takeaway from me. The other thing that I think is interesting is that Now that the business was all teed up, all the things were in place, 
the finances were in place, the owner didn't have to be there on a day-to-day basis, the staffing was in place, everything was on the launching pad. And the new owner came in and with some changes and lengthening of hours and even during a very difficult time of COVID for restaurants, he was able to significantly boost revenue because everything was all teed up. It would have been a different story if he had to rebuild and put all those processes in place after he took over. Right. So I think that is a great takeaway for our audience. And creating a business that doesn't depend on you is super critical, especially when those unexpected things happen. We have two things going on here. We have COVID and a pandemic, and we also have the situation of an unexpected health occurrence. And even with those two huge hurdles to overcome, they were able to smoothly exit out of the business. Well, let's see if you got a story that can top that one. Lauren, that was a great story. Great takeaways, too. So um, a lawn care business that, that we sold, was we considered a great success. And apparently the buyers and the sellers do, too, because they're they refer other businesses to us on a regular basis. Uh, it always makes this job good when buyers and sellers are happy uh, for an extensive period of time after the sale. Um, you know, I like to think of myself as more of a matchmaker than a salesperson. So when, when you're, when you're matching matchmaker, you need to know as much about the buyer and the seller as you possibly can. And in this case, in the business, what is it going to take to run the business in a successful manner? Um, We were fortunate in this instance to find a buyer that had some uh, past experience in the landscaping business and had understanding of how some of the financials are handled in a landscaping business. Uh, We had had told the owners that uh, a lot of their value was not going to come to the table when it sold because of uh, cash items that they dealt with. And they understood that. They were still hopeful that uh, that they could get a premium price. So just for our audience's benefit, when you're dealing with cash, especially something in landscaping business where you have a lot of cash running through the business, why is that such a challenge to find a, a buyer or get the business qualified to sell? Right. So, so the bank, a lender or any bank wants to see what money is there that can pay a debt. Or can pay a loan, and if the money doesn't show on a tax return, uh, they can't they can't count it. Uh, even if they're pretty confident it's there, they can't count it. Um, you're supposed to report it all. Um, this particular entity, the the primary reason they weren't reporting some of the cash was so that they had cash to pay their employees who would only work for cash. Um, if some immigrant type individuals, so. It made sense what they were doing, except it didn't look like they had very many employees to be doing the volume of business that they did on an annual basis. So what you're telling me here is that we have a business that's probably doing millions of dollars a year in revenue, and a large portion of the labor component of that is not reported for cash, and both on the revenue side and on the expense side, and that makes it extraordinarily difficult to extract value out of that business because you can't get a multiple on money on that doesn't exist. And so that's a challenge. And secondarily, tough to find a lender that will finance a business for 
the anticipated sales price if there isn't revenue there to cover debt service. Kind of a double whammy. Right. And so because there were these challenges, the owners understood these challenges. uh, But what they did bring to the table was a very successful business with a large portion of it being commercial entities that just repeat, repeat, repeat. They were willing to stay in a mentoring low pay position for an extended period of time to help the new owner maintain all the business that was there and to teach a new owner how they had successfully run a business. I think they'd had this landscape business maybe 30 or 40 years. Uh, It was well-established in the community. Uh, So, And they told us what it took to run the company. So we were able to go out there and find the right buyer to come to the table and they were willing to do the right things to help the buyer be successful. Uh, We were fortunate that we were able to find someone that uh, could operate on a cash basis, could purchase, purchase the company on a cash basis. Although the owners were willing to do some owner finance and if someone had had to, to go to bank financing. So they really, I guess, once you had the right information and there was full transparency, you understood what you were dealing with. You were able then to go to market. You were able to sort through all the different buyers out there, some of which probably didn't have the cash to be able to purchase the business in an all cash basis and were going to need some financing. But because you had the right information and understood the dynamics of the business, you were able to find someone that was a good fit for the business, could come to the table with cash, and they were able to close that transaction with a bonus here, it sounds like. And I'm just kind of curious on the details of this. So it's a husband and wife team. They were willing to stay on for four, five, six, seven months in unpaid or low paid type of mentoring, stick around and show you how the business is run type of situation. What was the motivation behind that? So they felt like their business was a legacy in the community and they were really proud of what they had done. Uh, They didn't really want the strain of daily operations on them anymore, Um, but to be able to coach and counsel a young person into into the business and and be part of their excitement because the new owner is going to try to build the business where the previous owner is just kind of maintaining once they, they achieve a level of comfort. Uh, so it worked really well for everyone. The, the wife was not eligible for Medicare yet. She, she needed to at least to get enough income to, or in her mind, enough income to take care of uh, her insurance needs until she turned 65. That's really all she asked. Well, that sounds like a win here for both parties. Uh, so they were able to extract value out of their business. Well, that's great. If people wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, how would they do that? Sure. Our company is Coastal Consultants. We're on the web, coastalconsult.org. A little bit of a different website uh, address. Have to remember it's .org, not .com. Uh, Or you can contact us. You can reach out to us by email, lauren at coastalconsult.org. Or you can send a message to Brutus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that she'll, she'll filter through all the all the messages and get those that are really interested in wanting to chat with you. Well, that's great. Yeah, we, we feel like it's important for people to realize that you need to find out what your business is worth now. Once you find out what it's worth now, then you can decide whether it's time to sell, or it's time to hold, or, or what your next step is. We, we want to talk to you when you're 
beginning to think about this, not the month before you want to retire. That's a great cautionary advice and something to particularly pay attention to. Well, Lauren, thank you for spending some time with us here today, sharing some of your transactional stories. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Texas Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.